0: No Ugly. Yes, please. No Ugly is created in New Zealand by a small, determined and innovative team whose mission is to eradicate ugly. It's inherent in the ingredients we choose, the products we create and our business values and behaviours. We are proud to be part of the global wellness movement, making a difference for the wellness of our people and our planet, right here from the cleanest, greenest country at the bottom of the world. No Ugly's range of functional beverages are scientifically formulated to get you back to gorgeous. With natural ingredients, they've created a truly functional range of beverages with proven health claims. And unlike any other health drinks, their entire line is low sugar, but taste amazeballs. Get back to gorgeous with No Ugly Skin and 10 grams of marine collagen. Detox, the hangover dream. Hydrate. Like an isotonic rain in the desert. Libido, yes, yes, yes. Immunity, it's to live for. Sleep, sweet dreams. Focus, your personal laser. Gut, for shits and giggles. And now calm, it's like a cuddle from your mum. They have three different formats 250ml glass bottles, 330ml cans, and now 100ml glass shots. No ugly, yes, please. This is the I Quit Sugar podcast, unprocessed, brought to you by No Ugly Wellness Tonics. Hi, I'm JJ from I Quit
1: Sugar. And I'm Peter, founder of Goodness Me, which is your go to good for you grocery store. We're here out of a deep desire to help you live your healthiest life. We've both been through health journeys which have been transformative in how we live our lives and approach each day. After learning how to manage my autoimmune condition through food and lifestyle, I realized that we live in a world where we are overfed and undernourished, but it can be as easy as some simple changes that can have a huge impact on how your body operates and how you feel day to day. I've also been through a very confusing and oftentimes overwhelming health
0: journey, which started with gut dysbiosis and developed into thyroid issues and now an autoimmune condition that I'm still learning about. We don't want you guys to go through what we have. It can be a lonely, overwhelming and often conflicting and confusing world. So we're hoping that these conversations inspire you to dig a bit deeper, cut through the noise and help you live a healthier life. Health is wealth at the end of the day. So I Quit Sugar are bringing you an eight episode series where we interview some incredible people who have so much wisdom to share on different areas of health and well-being. It's our hope these conversations inspire you to take control of your health and live your fullest life in the process.
2: Trigger warning, this podcast contains conversations about miscarriage and mental health. We recognise that these topics can be challenging to hear and we encourage you to prioritise your well-being while listening. If you or someone you know needs support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300224636. Remember, help is available and you're not alone.
1: Our guest today is Asaya McKinney. Asai is a couples therapist, sex therapist, sexologist, and coach who's been helping women and couples discover deeper intimacy and desire for over 15 years. She's one of Australia's most qualified sex and relationship experts, and her credentials include a master's degree in relational psychotherapy, a master's degree in science and medicine, Postgraduate Diploma of Sexology, a certificate from the prestigious Institute for the Advanced Studies of Human Sexuality, completion of the Gottman Method Couples Therapy Training Level 1, 2, and 3, and completion of Emotionally Focused Therapy Externship. She's worked with thousands of people, writes a popular weekly advice column on sex and relationships, and is featured regularly in magazines and the media. She's built her reputation on sharing practical tools and getting results for her client and feels privileged to be able to make a difference in people's relationships and lives. Welcome, Messiah. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you here. And JJ and I were just discussing how this is probably the topic we might know least about in this series. So we're so, so excited to speak to you. But to start things off really simple, we'd start off by asking what's one ritual you did this morning to set you up for the day?
3: I love this question. This morning, like so many mornings, I went for just a really gentle walk. So it's not fast. It's just a really slow walk that really helps settle my nervous system and helps me clear my head for the day before me.
1: Love it. So nice and so simple, but effective as well. Um, So there's so much to cover, but we'd like to sort of first start by asking exactly What is a sexologist and also know a bit more about your story, like what led you to become a sexologist?
3: I think the most simple um, way to explain what a sexologist is, is a sexologist is someone who studied sex. And as a sex therapist and sexologist, essentially I help people have more enjoyable sex lives. I help them overcome sexual challenges they might be having, and I help them improve their relationships and have more loving, harmonious relationships as a result. I have to say that this was a really, really unlikely career choice for me. And it definitely was not one that I was ever um, offered by careers counselors in school. It kind of happened really by accident for me. So I was pretty shy about sex and my body growing up. Um, And, you know, sex was never really spoken about in my household. So when I had sex, I liked it, but I felt like I was missing out on whatever everyone else seemed to know that made sex really amazing. In my early 20s, I ended up by chance going to a Tantra workshop at a music festival, and that totally changed my outlook on sex. Tantra helped me become more confident in my body. It gave me practical tools for having really amazing sex, and it also gave me tools for having more intimate, connected relationships, which was something that I was really wanting as well. So from there, one thing led to another, and I ended up teaching teaching Tantra and then studying a whole lot of really really amazing courses so I had the best tools possible to help people improve their sex lives and also their relationships love that and is there a bit of a misconception out there that you hear a lot about Tantra yeah Tantra is really about so more so much more than sex Tantra is at its heart it's a spiritual practice and we most know it in the West for the benefits it has to our sex life and relationships. Um, And that's really, you know, what is often taught around around Tantra here, but there is so much more to it than that.
1: And going into that workshop, did you not even realise this was something you wanted to do, but you just sort of stepped in like what happened
3: there i don't even think i knew what tantra was when i went in like because it certainly wasn't something that we were hearing very much about 15 years ago so i'm i'm not even sure if i actually knew um what what it was and for anyone who doesn't like really like don't don't worry it's it's you know it's essentially a form of yoga and meditation that also has benefits to our sex life but uh i i certainly had wasn't familiar with it at all
1: I'm sure we'll get into this stuff a bit more, but maybe I'll strip things back to basics a little bit and start with something like nutrition and libido. Obviously, you hear a lot about oysters being great for your libido. Is there anything else that Food can do for our sex drive what do you know about it?
3: Well, oysters are great for male libido because men lose zinc when they ejaculate, and so uh, these kind of foods that are considered aphrodisiacs are often aphrodisiacs because they replace zinc for men. So for women, the results are much less clear um, on this. Uh, You know, and we've even tried to kind of come up with drugs that will enhance women's libido, but we haven't really found like one particular thing yet. So the research isn't entirely um, decisive in terms of how much food impacts our libido or which foods impact libido. What we know, obviously, is that our diet and food choices impact our mood and they also impact uh, our energy levels. And both of those play a role in, in our libido and our willingness to engage in intimacy with a partner. But for women particularly, our desire is often much more contextual than that. So what's going on around us in our lives, in our relationships, in our internal world, in terms of our emotions and stress levels, that actually plays a much larger role than things uh, that are kind of physical um, or one factor in particular.
1: What about age? Does that sort of impact libido throughout different ages?
3: It does for both men and women, but again, what we find is it is an age in and of itself. So we know that um, couples and individuals continue can continue to have really healthy, satisfying, loving, intimate lives throughout their lives well into their 80s and 90s. but we also know that sexual function and pleasure and enjoyment, will change throughout our lives. Now, something really interesting to know for women is that when women get into a new relationship at any age, their libido, their desire tends to spike. And then as they settle into a long-term relationship, their desire goes down again. And that's to do with the honeymoon period, hormones and endorphins that start going um, going through our bodies at that point. But our desire can spike at any, age. So it isn't age in and of itself that decreases desire, but often the fact that we're in a long-term relationship, that that relationship might be experiencing disconnection, stress or tension, or that our sexual function has changed as a result of, of aging, which can make sex more difficult and therefore make us less less likely or less willing to engage in sex.
1: Talk to us about that honeymoon period a little bit, because obviously it's a real thing. And sometimes you might think, well, we've just lost the spark or the chemistry, but it sounds like a proper biological function that happens.
3: Is that right? Yeah, there is uh, this amazing cocktail of chemicals, um, like hormones and, and endorphins that go through our bodies when we first get into a relationship. They're essentially the um, hormones and endorphins that help us have that kind of high feeling of being in love where we feel really bonded and connected to someone, um, they do in some ways impair our decision making. So we're often, you know, a little bit blinded by love. But they do help us connect with someone in in really, really wonderful ways. And they also spike our our libido and desire. Then it's a really normal part of relationships that we move out of the honeymoon period. We have to, you know, kind of get on with with life again. We can't be as focused on that one person. And with that, our libido tends to change as well. It doesn't mean that we're falling out of love or that there's anything wrong with the relationship. It's really just a new phase that we move into after the honeymoon period.
1: Yeah. And do you find with lots of clients there can be chasing after that over and over again or yeah what do you
3: yeah and, and especially in relationships where there's a high level of conflict you often kind of get the ups and downs which doesn't necessarily mean it's a a really a, a more in love relationship than another one. Um, and I think we've got to be really mindful of chasing those highs um, and, those, and those lows, that relationships will just go through different periods and phases over time.
0: I'm curious, you mentioned women are susceptible to, you know, the honeymoon period and then um, desire decreasing. Is that the same for men or are they more, I guess, stable?
3: What we what we tend to know about men and women um, is that there are a few differences um, around sex and sexuality. So men do tend to think about sex more than women, uh, although studies have also shown that they think about other kind of survival topics like sleep and food more than women um as well so that that is a a difference between us Um, men don't always have a higher desire than than women and i think that's really important to know in the context of relationships that a mismatch in libidos can really go both ways in a relationship one of the things that we're now kind of starting to understand about libido sexual desire is that it isn't just this kind of magical or mysterious thing that is sometimes there and then sometimes isn't. For many people, once we get through that honeymoon period, desire tends to become responsive. And so what that means is it responds to things going on around us. Now, a way to kind of think about this is like a car that has got Breaks and also an accelerator. And uh, as our desire becomes more responsive, it responds to those breaks and accelerators rather than just arising from nowhere. So if we want to increase desire, we don't just kind of add in things that, um, that might turn us on or help get us in the mood like sex toys or lingerie or doing certain things in the bedroom we also have to address the breaks the things that might be getting in the way of us opening up to sex or getting in the way of us feeling desire and that can be tiredness stress uh, poor body image tension or disconnection in a relationship. It can even just be fear that the kids are going to walk in and kind of interrupt that that intimate moment. Um, exhaustion, of course, um, and, and sometimes hormonal changes, although again, they kind of play a smaller role than than the other contextual factors that would be going on as well.
1: Yep. And I imagine, you know, there would be also a lot of people listening out there who work full time, you're running the home, you're Mm -hmm. gonna be intimate with your partner. There's so many you've lived such a busy life there's so many things to to factor in how do you usually approach those kind of um circumstances
3: I love this question um there's a couple of parts to this when we lead really busy lives it's going to increase our stress levels and as our stress levels go up our ability to engage in pleasure and connection go down because we're not biologically programmed to be in high stress states and to be in rest, digestion and reproduction at the same time. So it's really important that we find ways to manage our stress and find ways to switch out of the doing, doing everything for the day, which in itself creates a level of stress to more of being and connecting with someone. Now, a way that we can do this is by scheduling time intimacy. And I know people get like, oh my God, like scheduling sex, that that sounds really unappealing and really unsexy. But essentially the way that I like to think of it is setting aside time for bedroom dates. So we know that making sex a priority is one of the most important factors to maintaining long-term desire and sexual satisfaction in a relationship. Making it a priority means making time for it. And so that might be that on a particular night of the week, you kind of leave some of the chores undone and go to bed early, or you set aside time on a weekend where you know you won't be interrupted, not just so that you can have sex, but so that you can really connect with each other in a meaningful way and then give that kind of intimacy the best chance of possible to happen.
1: That's a great tip. And also, you know, stop all the other things running through your head when you want to, when you want to stop that inner voice. So that's awesome. Um, Talking about communication, so obviously communicating your sexual needs to your partner, that can be something that's really difficult. What's your advice on that for speaking to your partner but also knowing yourself what you what you want or need?
3: So often women tell me, my partner wants to know what I like in bed, but I'm afraid of hurting his feelings. And I don't even know if I know what I like in bed. So I think that's really, and I love that you brought it up, one of the first things. Is for us to start to be able to listen to our bodies so that we know what feels good for us and what doesn't. And that doesn't mean we have to have all the answers about what we like, but just to be able to tune into our body so that in the moment we know either this feels good or it doesn't for me. Uh, We can also do some exploration on our own. So I am talking about masturbation to discover what it is that we like or or don't like during sex. And then we can give a partner some guidance on that. And of course, we can explore with a partner um, as well. So practice um, trying different things, practice communicating. I have an exercise called body mapping, which I love sharing with uh, with couples around this, um, where they start exploring different ways of touching each other's body and they're constantly giving each other feedback on what feels good and what doesn't because we don't just automatically know what a partner likes and we don't just automatically know what we like either. We really have to explore and discover it. When it comes to sharing this with a partner, I so often hear women say, I'm afraid of hurting his feelings. And I often hear men say, I wish she would tell me more about what she likes in the bedroom. Like, I really want to know what to do to please my partner, but I I, I don't know. And I just wish she, she'd give me some more direction on that. So when we are giving a partner of any gender direction in, in the bedroom, it's really useful to keep that feedback positive. Um, so there's three, three steps that I like to, to use for this. One is to share a compliment or appreciation about what they're doing right now to say what you would prefer instead and then to let them know that they've got it right or tell them that feels really really good so it doesn't come off as a criticism or they feel like they can never entirely get it get it right
2: as life becomes more stressful there's less and less time for the things that really matter things like sweet sweet loving that's why No Ugly's head of science created her own strawberry-cherry love potion called No Ugly Libido, packed full of natural ingredients used for centuries by women looking to master the language of love. Science meets botanical ingredients. Shantavari, literal translation, she who has a hundred husbands, ashwagandha, maca root, Tropic ginseng, Ginkgo biloba, and El theanine botanic extracts women have turned to for centuries, now scientifically formulated to create No Ugly Libido. Of course, No Ugly's unique blend of ten vitamins and minerals are the ever-present foundation, all coming together to create a seductively delicious wellness tonic, bursting with strawberries and cherries and overflowing with lightly sparkling juicy gorgeousness. Just like you will be.
1: In terms of Feelings of shame or guilt around sexual experiences. I think, you know, a lot of that can go on. What do you often see when you're working with clients? What would be your advice?
3: This is such a big one. And I think it is one of those areas where men and women often have really different experiences. Men are often praised for their number of sexual partners. They're often praised for their sexual adventure. They're often praised for knowing what they want and like in the bedroom women are often um we're often kind of taught a culture of fear and shame around sex sex has more negative consequences for women and so our sex education is very often more fear-based and of course there are bigger social consequences for women the judgment and the social judgment if we've had sex too much or we know what we like or we've had a certain number of sexual partners so Understanding and looking at some of those early messages we got around sex can really help us start to undo the ways that they impact us um, in in our lives. And we can do that by ourselves. We can do that by having a conversation with our partner, or we can do that by having a conversation with a therapist. And as we kind of shine that light of consciousness on what those messages and beliefs are, they start to lose their grip on us and disappear and we can start to replace those with the beliefs that we actually have that are very often more empowering. I will say that for some people the sexual shame often comes as a result of trauma and then I really suggest getting the support of a therapist to work through um, the shame and emotion that can go along with that but for other people very often looking at their own beliefs and choosing those more empowering beliefs can make such a difference. I suppose scenarios with
1: trauma aside aside from that, have you seen a shift because you've been doing this for a long time over the past 10 years in the way sex is viewed and the shame around it at all by, by women in particular?
3: I love seeing this overall change that we are experiencing you know it's really not that long ago it's only a couple of hundred years ago really that the head doctors were saying that women experience no sexual desire at all or there's something really really wrong with the woman if she experiences any sexual desire at all so we are really slowly moving in the right direction around that and i love that sex toys are more specifically designed for women and what how women's bodies actually work and what brings them pleasure now and i think we still have a ways to go because very often those things that we were taught you know in our childhood when we were quite young play such a role for us and that's still playing out for so many of us so i do still think that we have we have some work to do in this area but i love the changes that that we have seen in the last 15 years i suppose one of the
1: hardest times can be for women you know, after you have a baby. I think that's a really difficult time. Mm. One, you're super sleep deprived and then maybe you're putting pressure on yourself about your relationship or your sexual relationship or maybe you're experiencing that from a partner. So I would love to hear a bit more about that and um, how you view this time.
3: I've met so few couples who've told me their sex life wasn't impacted by having a baby. It is it is a huge time in a woman's life it's a huge time in a couple's life and for most people they will see a pretty dramatic reduction in desire for a period of time um, after that there are a few things that contribute to that and then a few things that that we can do to improve it so hormone hormonal changes during this time, especially if a woman is breastfeeding, um, there's there's going to be a change to her, her hormonal balance, which can sometimes change the uh, the balance of mucus within the vagina. So she, it will be more difficult for her to lubricate. That can cause pain and also just discomfort and sometimes embarrassment during sex. Women often um, are much more stressed at that time. And that sense of kind of being touched out is really a stress response of having kind of so much to do and so much on their minds um, during that time and of course like utter exhaustion and not having any energy left at the end of the day as well. There's also a large body of research that shows that The more sexual a woman is perceived to be, the less she is perceived to be a good mother. And that research, unfortunately, still holds true today. So very often when women are grappling with their new identities as mothers, they're having to grapple with this idea that now and whether it's conscious or not, now that I'm a mother, I can't be too sexual or I can't be sexual in the way that I used to be. And women's partners are often grappling with that as well. Do I need to treat her differently now that she's the mother of my children? Do I not have that sexual desire in the same way now that she's a mother? So looking at those mindsets um, and again, those beliefs can play a really big role in the ways that you are willing to engage and can engage with each other um, as a couple. Connection between partners is often diminished at that time. So making sure that you're really prioritizing your connection as a couple and as the foundation of your new family plays a huge role in that and understanding how each other is feeling in your new roles and with the introduction of of a whole new person into your couples dynamic as well is really important for being able to maintain that that sexual connection which is also a need the children so your relationship and having a strong relationship is one of the most important things that you can do for your children um, because it changes everything within the household so focusing on having a great relationship which includes a sexual relationship can actually benefit your children as well
1: also your comment about um i'm still stuck on how you said the more sexualized a woman is the more Mm -hmm. she's perceived as a bad mother which sounds so shocking when you mentioned that's actually yeah. a scientific study. And it, it made me think about that situation with Emrata when she posted, you know, a really sexy bikini photo holding her mm-hmm. new baby and, you know, she just got annihilated on social media. Is that something that um they've found also sits subconsciously with the partner? Or is it just society that has that
3: society wide. Yeah, it is it is both men and women are shown to have these judgments and they have been around for, for a really long time. It isn't necessarily something new, but it is, it is something that persists, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And something we should really get out of that mindset, mm. you know, and it's probably so unintentional that we, you know, but it's so empowering when a woman does feel sexy and confident and yeah. So I think that's really important. and. Um, I want to touch on this subject really delicately as well, which is miscarriage. Obviously, a very traumatising mm-hmm. time for, for anyone to go to. Um, but we imagine also, you know, can have impact on the relationship as well and connection. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, how do you think um, couples should, should approach that or what's, yeah, what's your view on that?
3: Fertility and miscarriage both have a huge impact on, on a couple's sex life and being able to emotionally support each other through that time and to give both partners the space that they might need is really important um, through that. It, it's such, it is such a sensitive topic and we're not handled well when couples aren't able to support each other well together during that time. Um, it, can kind of cause a crack in the relationship which kind of builds over time. Talking, talking through things, understanding how both partners are feeling about that would be the first step and if a couple's struggling to do that on their own because there's just too much emotion around it, reaching out for a therapist for support can be a really great step just to be able to navigate what are really, really hard and emotionally charged conversations together yeah yeah
1: and um what about menopause as well you know a difficult time for women to go through that or it can be at least yeah what do you see in terms of intimacy and Mm. um, connection with your partner then
3: so again we know that um this is a change in life that can impact women's sexual desire We know that couples can maintain these healthy, satisfying sex lives throughout their lives, but our sexuality and our sexual desire, our sexual needs and what brings us pleasure is going to change at different points throughout our lives. So the menopause doesn't necessarily mean that our desire will disappear or that it's gone forever after a certain period of time. But we may need to accommodate changes that are happening in our bodies. So for women, um, once we go through menopause, hormonal changes will again mean that we don't lubricate as easily or in the in the same ways that we used to, and that can cause um, pain and discomfort. As can the atrophy of the vaginal walls, so the thinning of the skin on um, the vaginal um, in the vaginal tissues can make us more susceptible to pain. For both men and women, our um, Our sexual function tends to kind of decrease so we won't necessarily feel pleasure in the same ways that we used to it can be harder to experience orgasm than it was earlier we can find ways to adjust the ways we're engaging sexually after menopause that might mean using more lubricant or vaginal moisturizer it might mean going slower it might mean changing the positions that we engage in with a partner because our body doesn't want to move in the same way or or certain positions uh, bring us uh, pain and some are kind of easier for us. So a couple really working together, having a foundation of good connection and good communication so that they can navigate that together will help avoid too many negative consequences to their sex life and help them find ways to keep enjoying themselves even after menopause or even as their sexual function changes yep
1: and sounds like communication to do all of this is is so important and you spoke Mm -hmm. earlier about the differences in libido but also wanted to touch on again sort of the differences in sexual preferences as well and how does no one communicate that and you know are there sort of tips that you have?
3: Yeah so um, being able to have conversations both outside the bedroom and inside the bedroom are really important around sexual communication. So being able to give your partner when you're inside the bedroom directions such as harder, faster, softer, slower, i Prefer if you did this now. uh, I'm not ready for penetration yet. Can we do this instead is really important. But so are then being able to have conversations outside the bedroom where you're really kind of talking more openly about what feels good for each of you, what sex means to each of you, what you might like to try, um, what you'd both like to incorporate into the bedroom and really uh, really building the conversation that way. One really helpful um, kind of way of starting around this can be to talk about what were the messages you received around sex when you were growing up and kind of talking through some of that together because it can help you both understand where you're each coming from around that and then be better able to have conversations going forward. So
1: you'd recommend sort of a lot of those longer discussions to be at a completely separate time, you'd say?
3: i yeah, i I do actually, because sometimes it can feel a little bit kind of jarring to do that in the in the bedroom. um and you can also feel a little bit more vulnerable or a little bit more pressure as well during that time. So being able to sit down when you do have time and talking through those conversations can make a huge difference. And
1: what about um? meeting someone new you might not be in a relationship with them but you're intimate with them and you know that difficulty expressing you know what you want or need in that moment do you find um there's like different ways of doing that if you're not as familiar with the person
3: yeah it's definitely harder and it's one of the reasons um that we think there's such a gap between the amounts um, that men and women have orgasms in kind of new sexual encounters because women often find it harder to speak up and to share what it is they're wanting in the bedroom so with someone new i still think it's important if you can to have the conversations before you get into the bedroom so you're really clear on how you're both feeling around it, if there are any particular needs you have around it, what you might do um, around safer sex, for example, rather than kind of waiting until that awkward moment where you feel like it's harder to say no or it's harder to bring up those difficult conversations. So if you can do those sooner rather than later, it's going to make a big difference. And I want to see more and more women really find their voice and to know that it's okay for us to ask for what we want in the bedroom, that our needs are totally okay if it's taking us longer than we think it should to reach orgasm that that's also okay if we don't like something that a partner is doing that's also okay we don't have to try to please someone else in the bedroom we can really prioritize our own pleasure and our own safety and our own needs first i'd love to hear what you think
1: about the word intimacy and what that means cuz you know it's it's not always about the end goal of orgasm that everyone speaks about as well so like where does intimacy and pleasure and all of that sit in the whole um Yeah, connection.
3: Intimacy is such an interesting word, isn't it? I I often use it because I get censored so much on social media. Um, I often use intimacy as a replacement word for sex, but intimacy is so much more than that. Intimacy is really about the ways that we're connecting with someone, which requires a certain kind of vulnerability to really have intimacy. And so sex can also be intimate um because it's it's vulnerable i love your point though that that intimacy doesn't have to end in in orgasm so i think it's really important for for people to know for themselves what is intimacy for them what are the ways they really like connecting with someone and what's important to them when it comes to sex because for someone for one person it might be that they love spending. Half an hour or more in foreplay, and whether or not they reach orgasm isn't important. Um, for someone else, it might be that they spend time talking through their their emotions or they or their other things that they like to do um, in the bedroom, which is important. So I think really knowing that for ourselves and being able to talk about it with a partner becomes really important.
1: We noticed you're a Gottman Institute trained couples therapist. We'd love to hear about that institute and what that training is, what it involves.
3: The work of the the Gottmans and the Gottman Institute is absolutely amazing. It is some of the most comprehensive research that we have on what makes relationships really happy and strong versus what we know leads to the erosion of relationships um, that we have. So the Gottman Institute over 50 years has done really, really comprehensive research into what they call the masters and disasters of relationships. We have really clear data on what shows up in happy, successful relationships and the behaviors and interactions that over time erode relationships and what they were able to do is introduce exercises information and behavioral changes that would help couples address and change the behaviours that we know erode a relationship over time so that they can create really strong and, and healthy relationships. And there's some really, really wonderful, clear information that the the Gottman Institute and that Gottman trained therapists are able to share with couples to help them create happier, stronger, more harmonious relationships.
0: I'm a big fan of the Gottman Institute and I've downloaded a couple of their apps. Like They've got some apps around different questions you ask you know your partner when you're on a date um rather than you know just talking about the same things day in day out Mm -hmm.
2: Um, yes
0: all of that amazing stuff that you mentioned would you mind sharing um i know they they call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse yeah (laughs) the erosion the eroders of relationships do you mind sharing those with us and yeah just um explaining what they are
3: so in, through their research, um, the Gottmans were essentially able to predict with over 90% accuracy whether a relationship would stay together or um, break up or be together but really unhappy through key factors that they saw going on between couples. The Four Horsemen was one of the strongest predictors of what would happen to a relationship over time uh, and in and of themselves could predict with over 93 percent accuracy what would happen to a couple's relationship a few years down the line so the four horsemen are four communication styles that erode a relationship and will predict the end of a relationship that's criticism when we attack the other person's character or actions Something really important to know about criticism is that we're so often not intending to criticize someone when we're being critical. Women tend to criticize more than men in a relationship. And very often we think we're just being helpful. We're just trying to let our partner know what they're doing wrong so that they can fix it. And then we'll have harmony in the relationship. Unfortunately, the way that that comes out a lot of the time is or is perceived as criticism and that starts to damage the relationship criticism normally gets followed by the second horseman which is defensiveness where we try to defend ourselves against the accusations or the criticism that's coming towards us so criticism can look like a counterattack. it can look like denial or it can look like justification for what it is we're doing. And again, we're not trying to hurt our partner by defending ourselves. We're just trying to let them know how we're not really to blame so that we can have harmony in the relationship. The next horseman that usually comes out is stonewalling. Stonewalling is when one partner shuts down, leaving a relationship emotionally or physically. Women tend to leave the conversation physically. Men tend to leave the conversation emotionally. So they'll be there, but it feels like talking to a stone wall because they're not really present. But again, it's not an attempt to hurt a partner. It's a way of coping. And actually it's an attempt to not make an argument or a discussion worse. So what's usually going on inside for someone when they're stonewalling on the outside is, I don't know what to say that's going to make this better right now. I feel like anything I say is just going to make this worse. The best thing I can do is just be quiet and wait for all of this to pass. It'll be over soon if I just keep quiet. Of course, what that tends to do is make the other person louder and more distressed because they're not getting a reaction, but the intention isn't to hurt the other person. And the last of the horsemen, which usually comes out when every single one of these has been happening over time, and it's a last resort for trying to get heard, in a relationship is contempt, and that's when we kind of make below-the-belt attacks. We use nasty humour, sarcasm, mocking, eye-rolling, or just really, really nasty comments that are meant to undermine someone. And contempt is the biggest predictor of the end of a relationship. It often comes out only when there's been a lot of conflict over time. That's
1: so interesting. It yeah. was <laughs> the fact how accurate those studies mm. are. I imagine when a couple, I don't know if you only see people individually or as a as a couple, do you see couples together?
3: I see I see both. So um whenever there's a sexual challenge or an issue in the relationship, it's always my preference to see a couple together because both people are going to be involved and have a role to play in improving things in some ways, but sometimes I do also see individuals by themselves. So when
1: couples come in together and you see one of these four, I don't know if they can all be together maybe, or is mm. there, you know, is there the mindset that, okay, this can be fixed or reversed, or sometimes it's too far gone for a pair?
3: So one of the things that I start with when I'm seeing um, couples is to do a really comprehensive relationship assessment um, where I meet with couples first together then individually and have them complete um, a relationship assessment online that takes each of them about an hour. So I get a really, really detailed view of exactly what's going on in their relationship that's either a strength for them or that's something we need to address because if we don't, it'll end up impacting their relationship. So, So that's where I start and then I share all of that information with them. So they're really empowered to make changes changes as we go. And then really methodically, we start working through the areas that need change and that need support. So replacing the four horsemen with their antidotes, ways that you can disagree and have arguments that don't damage the relationship is a part of that, but it's very often not the only step that we would take. So there's really a a whole strategy around that, but changing communication plays a huge role in helping couples have more harmonious relationships relationships. So it's always a big focus of the work that I do with couples. I feel
0: like there's so much more we could unpack. But um, as we are all about getting people in the kitchen and um, home cooking, I would love to ask you what's um, one meal that you have made in the past couple of weeks that's been a real winner? So
3: I am a huge fan of Ottolenghi. Um, I have almost all of all of his books. And so something I made recently that was a huge hit was his Persian Love Rice. It's one of my favorites. So um, it has this amazing mix of spices that include really delicious things like cardamom, uh, raw r- petals, um, Uh, coriander. You fry up onion and ginger and garlic and then add the rice in, add this amazing um, spice mixture. And then when the rice is cooked, you stir through things like grated carrot um, and barberries, which are these really kind of tangy Um, amazing Middle Eastern um, berries. You put through um, nuts like um, uh, slivered almonds, or sometimes I put through pistachios and pine nuts. So it's this really hearty, tasty rice dish that can kind of be the main part of the meal. And then I serve that with just like um, usually like chicken um, or some steamed vegetables as well. But it's the rice is absolutely one of my, one of my favorite things to make ever.
0: I love that. And it's very on brand, the love rice. Mm. I know. (laughs) That's great. So we'll, we'll have to put that recipe um, on the Sugar site so people can, can try it for themselves. But that sounds delicious.
1: Asaya, you clearly live and breathe what you do, <laughs> even from your your cooking. But um, I feel like we just scratched the surface with you and mm. there's so much mm. more. So if people want to find out more, where's the place to go or to get in touch with you?
3: Yeah, so I am on Instagram as asayamakimi.sexologist. I share a whole lot of information and resources there or also my website asaya-mckimmy.com you can find um, my podcast episodes free resources over there and you can also find out more about doing therapy with myself or one of my trained therapists as well
1: thanks so much asaya it was a pleasure to chat to you this podcast
0: please give us a five star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it we want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.